I make no claims to being a legal expert because I don't have much experience with the legal system, but I have watched my fair share of law and order over the years, and uh, so I do think I know a little something about the way that it works. And one of the recurring themes of that show is that the prosecution is far less concerned about what is true than they are about what they can prove. That is why prosecutors will often elect to charge a person with a lesser crime, even though they think they are guilty of a greater crime, because the weight of the evidence in the case of the former assures a guilty verdict, whereas the circumstantial evidence in the case of the latter renders the verdict in doubt. And I imagine that there is nothing that a prosecuting attorney hates more than to spend Weeks of their time, hundreds and hundreds of man hours, thousands of their budget dollars to prosecute a case only to have it end in a mistrial or worse, an acquittal. Perhaps the most famous instance of this phenomenon is that of Al Capone, the notorious Chicago gangster of the 1920s. The government had long desired to prosecute Capone and other prosecution-era gangsters for a variety of crimes, including corruption and racketeering and murder. But the evidence linking these mob bosses to the actual crimes was very slim, and the list of those who were willing to testify against them was even slimmer. But in the mid-1920s, an assistant U.S. Attorney General by the name of Mabel Walker Willebrandt devised a way of prosecuting and incarcerating these major crime figures that had until that time been able to operate with impunity. Noticing that these crime bosses lived opulent lifestyles yet never seemed to fill out tax returns, she developed a method of prosecuting them for not murder, not racketeering, not prostitution, but tax evasion. This manner of prosecution was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1927 in the case of the United States versus Sullivan, ruling that a failure to report even illegal tax income was not protected by the Fifth Amendment. So with that legal precedent established, on October 17, 1931, Al Capone was convicted of tax evasion. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison. He was fined $58,000, and he was ordered to pay $215,000 in back taxes. Now, this wasn't the capital case that prosecutors had hoped for. They'd hoped to see him in the electric chair. But it did the job. Capone spent the next eight years in prison, the last three on Alcatraz, during which time his brain was decimated by syphilis. He spent the remainder of his life sickly and weak, having the mentality of a 12-year-old, before finally dying in 1947. Now, you may be asking, what does Al Capone have to do with Jesus Christ? The answer is nothing, except maybe in the circumstances of Capone's prosecution and the way in which they bear certain resemblances to Jesus's prosecution. In last week's text, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, functioning as a grand jury of sorts, worked very hard to find a charge that would stick 
to Jesus so that they could indict him and bring him to trial before the Roman authorities. At first, they solicited testimony from the general populace, but that proved fruitless as the testimonies of many witnesses were riddled with contradictions and would never have held up in a Roman court. Then a group of witnesses leveled a charge of greater substance against Jesus. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even then, they could not get their facts straight, and their testimony had to be thrown out. Finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, decided that it was time to take matters into his own hand, and so he stood up and he asked Jesus point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The thought was, if you can't find reliable witnesses to incriminate Jesus, then try to put Jesus into a position where he's forced to incriminate himself. And Jesus did. Chapter 14 and verse 62. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And with that, Caiaphas had the confession that he needed to convict. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments. He said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. But the Sanhedrin lacked the authority to carry out that capital sentence. See, even though Rome allocated to the local government a certain amount of jurisdiction in civil cases, and even some criminal cases, it jealously guarded what is known as the right of the sword, that is, the right to carry out capital punishment. Therefore, if the Sanhedrin wanted to see Jesus put to death, they needed to hand him over to the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, who would then conduct his own trial of Jesus. But there was a problem. Blasphemy which is the charge on which Jesus was convicted before the Sanhedrin, was not a crime under Roman law. See, Rome did not care if some Jewish prophet from backwoods Galilee went on proclaiming himself to be the son of God. If the chief priests and if the elders and the scribes tried Jesus on the charge of blasphemy, they would find an unsympathetic judge and the conviction would be overturned. What they needed was a charge that would stick in a Roman court of law. They needed a charge that would procure for them what they wanted, which was the penalty of death. It really didn't matter what it was so long as it got the job done. That's what they were consulting about early Friday morning where our text begins in chapter 15 and verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, as we will see, the charge upon which they settled was that of high treason. They accused Jesus not of claiming to be the Son of God, but of claiming to be the King of the Jews. That was a charge that would get Pilate's attention. That was a charge that Pilate could not simply dismiss. You see, Rome didn't care if someone claimed to be the son of God. They were a polytheistic culture. They believed in any number of gods and demigods. 
But Rome had only one king, that is Caesar, and he permitted no rivals to his throne. And so it was that Jesus Christ, the son of David and son of God, was tried before Pilate on the charge of treason for claiming to be the king of the Jews. In today's passage, we're going to see Jesus stand before three distinct groups. First, his adjudicate, or his judge. Second, his accusers. And finally, his abusers. And only one time in this process of trials will Jesus break his silence and respond. Once again, we're going to see that Jesus is treading the path of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5, which records Jesus' trial before Pilate, his adjudicate or his judge. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests had a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? So see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. The overnight trial of the Sanhedrin and their pre-dawn consultation was necessary because Roman officials typically conducted business sometime between the hours of 5 a.m. or dawn and 10 a.m. when they then would retire to do whatever it is that Roman gentlemen did. Pilate, whose official residence would have been in Caesarea, over on the Mediterranean coast, some 70 miles away, would have been staying on this Passover holiday week at Herod's palace in Jerusalem. Because the holiday, because of its increase in the number of pilgrims and therefore its increase in uh, the tension in the political, or potential anyway, for political uprising, required his presence there in the capital city, required his presence in Jerusalem. So Jesus early in the morning would have been led from Caiaphas's residence through the streets of Jerusalem to Herod's palace to stand trial before Pilate. And it may be helpful here to pause and give a, a brief biographical sketch of Pontius Pilate so that we can get an idea of who this guy was. Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of Palestine. His official title was that of prefect. And he served in that capacity from the years 26 to 37 AD when he was eventually banished under the emperor Gaius, who is better known as Caligula. Pilate was not an incompetent man, but he did lack the diplomatic skills necessary to govern in this particularly excitable Roman outpost on the far reaches of the empire. If Pilate did not hate the Jews themselves, he at least despised their propensity to cause trouble. And several times in the midst of his 12-year career, he responded to their disruptions with 
unparalleled cruelty. Four episodes in his governance of Palestine will suffice to give us a picture of this man and of his method of ruling. On one occasion, Pilate placed Roman military flags in Jerusalem that contained on them the image of Caesar. This, of course, offended the Jews who had a strict policy against images. And so they traveled the 70 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea to stage a protest outside the gates of Pilate's residence. Pilate ordered that the Jews who were protesting be rounded up, taken into the stadium, and there be put to death. The problem was when they began to be slaughtered, they did absolutely nothing to defend themselves. They showed by their willingness to die for the cause that they would not be removed and that this problem that he had created by erecting these flags in Jerusalem wouldn't be solved merely by killing a handful of Jews. And so Pilate was forced to relent. He took the flags down, but the damage had already been done in terms of his relationship with the Jewish people. On another occasion, Pilate took money from the temple treasury in order to pay for a 23-mile-long aqueduct that would bring fresh water into Jerusalem, probably thinking that he is doing a public works project. The problem is is that the temple treasury, the money that's in the treasury, is off-limits to Gentile hands. It's dedicated to God. The Jews again protested. And so Pilate ordered non-uniformed soldiers to beat them in the streets, and many of these soldiers went too far, and a number of Jews wound up dead. On a third occasion, Pilate slew a number of Galilean pilgrims when they had come to worship in the temple, and he mixed their blood with their sacrifices upon the altar. This event is described for us, or at least referred to, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. And then finally... In the result that, uh, or in the event that resulted in his removal from office, Pilate responded to an uprising in Samaria by unleashing his cavalry upon a largely unarmed group. Life went downhill from Pilate after his banishment from Palestine, and eventually he took his own life. Now, I give you this background information in order to establish that Pilate is not the sympathetic character that he is so often portrayed to be. As if he was a man who wanted to do the right thing, but was simply helpless before the relentless wheel of circumstance. That's not an accurate picture of the man Pontius Pilate. Pilate was an opportunist who had little moral fiber. And besides, no man can simply wash their hands of guilt with the pitiful excuse of circumstance. So Pilate is not a man that deserves our pity when we read the gospel stories. At any rate, Mark doesn't provide a great deal of detail about Jesus' trial before Pilate, so it's necessary for us to reach into the other gospel accounts in order to add to the testimony, particularly that of John. Mark does tell us four significant details. So I'm going to show you what Mark tells us about Jesus' trial before Pilate, and then we'll pull in a little bit of Luke, and we'll pull in a little bit of John in order to get a clearer picture of what's transpiring in these early hour mornings on Good Friday. Now, I've already mentioned that, number one, the primary charge which is brought against Jesus is that of treason. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews. Luke actually records for us 
a little bit more on this initial accusation. In Luke 23, verses 2 to 3, the Sanhedrin accuses Jesus before Pilate, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. To which Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Let me ask you a question. We've been through the Gospel of Mark. Did Jesus tell the people of Israel that they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar? No. In fact, he said the very opposite. Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. So this is a false accusation, and the Sanhedrin knows it. They had earlier tried to trap him, but when they couldn't be or, but when he couldn't be trapped by their accusation, they just simply lied about it. But true or not, this charge was enough to get Pilate's attention. Second, Jesus responds to Pilate with the simple, You have said so, which is a strange way to respond to a very direct question Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds very vaguely, You have said so. What does that mean? Well, I think the best answer is that Jesus cannot deny that he is the king of the Jews because, indeed, he is. But neither can he affirm Pilate's question because he is not a king in the way in which Pilate conceives of a king. In other words, Jesus has zero political or revolutionary aspirations which is the kind of king that Pilate fears. Again, John helps us by providing a little bit more detail into Jesus' answer. In John 18, beginning in verse 33, John writes, So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Okay, that's as much as Mark gives us. John actually records an interchange between Jesus and Pilate. It goes like this. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate said to him, what is truth? For this purpose I was born. Yes, I am a king, but I was born into the world for this purpose, not to foment a rebellion, not to seek a political throne. I was born into this world to bear testimony to the truth, and anyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So yes, Jesus is a king, but no, Jesus is not that kind of king. Not yet, anyway. Third, the chief priests accused Jesus of many other things in addition to the claim to be king. Now, we already saw that they accused Jesus 
of forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar, but they didn't stop there. In Luke chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, Luke records, Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. You can see the Sanhedrin just feeling the death of Jesus slipping through their fingers. And so they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people. He teaches throughout Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Okay? Stirs up the people is another charge specifically designed to get Pilate's attention. Okay? That's exactly what Pilate doesn't want. Pilate does not want the people stirred up. That's why he's in Palestine, to keep people from getting stirred up. So the chief priests accused Jesus of fomenting a rebellion. The fourth piece of information that Mark provides is that Jesus' silence in the face of such serious accusations utterly stunned Pilate. Could not make sense of why Jesus would not defend himself. Mark says that he marveled. What caused Pilate to marvel? I think it was that Pilate now understood that Jesus was not guilty of the charges that had been brought against him. Pilate now understood that Jesus had no political or revolutionary aims. In a very real sense, Jesus and Pilate are on the same page now, which means if Jesus will just defend himself, he can go free but he won't. I think that's why Pilate marvels. Why doesn't he answer his accusers? Why does he not defend himself? Pilate marveled just as many people marvel at Jesus' resignation and resolve and resilience in the face of his impending death. Jesus' silence in the face of his accusers has caused many throughout the centuries to marvel. But I think we would do well to remember that admiration is not the same thing as faith. The next section finds the king before his accusers, who are the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, along with a growing crowd that has gathered in the courtyard of Herod's palace, which is functioning as Pilate's residence, beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. I think Pilate expects the crowd to be with Jesus and not with the Sanhedrin. But he's surprised. For the chief priests have stirred up the crowd to have them release for them, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate is now convinced of Jesus' innocence. Jesus may be 
a crazy prophet from Galilee, but he is no revolutionary and he poses no threat to Rome. He certainly is not on a par with the other man that he has in prison, namely Barabbas. Add to this fact that Matthew reports that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, that Pilate's wife sends him a message saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. And I think it becomes clear that Pilate feels a strong incentive to release Jesus. He wants to release Jesus. But there's a problem. As a Roman prefect of the province of Judea, Pilate's primary responsibility is not to find the truth. That's not what he's in Palestine to do. Pilate's primary role as judge is not to acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. That's not what he was charged to do when he was handed the governorship of this unruly province. As a Roman prefect, Pilate's primary role is to keep the peace to keep the Jews in subjection to Rome, in particular to keep them paying taxes, while at the same time keeping them appeased so that they do not revolt and have to be put down at great expense to Rome. That's what he's there to do. In other words, Pilate's fate will be determined by whether or not he can keep Judea both peaceful and profitable. And if he can accomplish that, he gets to stay. And if he can't accomplish that, Rome will find someone else who will. So Pilate senses that he's sitting on a powder keg, which is likely to explode if he makes a wrong move and angers the masses, particularly during this emotionally intense, nationalistic week of Passover. This is why Pilate cannot simply release Jesus So he devises a plan. He's a cunning man. Evidently, there was a custom established in Jerusalem whereby during the Passover, the Roman governor would release a prisoner of Israel's choosing as a show of good faith. Now, Pilate knows that he has a man in prison by the name of Barabbas who has taken part in an insurrection which had resulted probably in the murder of either a Roman official, a Roman soldier, or perhaps a Roman loyalist among the Jews. So Pilate decides that he's going to offer to the crowd what he thinks is a fairly easy choice. The problem is is that the crowd, which has been assembling below in the courtyard of Herod's palace, has been worked on for a while now by the Sanhedrin. And so when Pilate comes and says, shall I release for you Barabbas, the notorious murderer, or Jesus, the king of the Jews, he hears something from the crowd that he does not expect. The chief priests have already been at work on the crowd, stirring them up against Jesus. And when they cried out for the release of Barabbas, Pilate appears startled. Then then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd cries out, crucify him. Now Pilate is even more startled. Why? What evil has he done? But they just shouted all the more, 
Crucify him. Crucify him. And I think it's at that moment that Pilate realizes he's lost. He knows what must be done. If he doesn't give the crowds what they want, he'll have a riot on his hands, and he simply cannot afford another one of those. Now, once again, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John to provide a little bit more detail and color the scene a little bit for us in our minds. John 19, verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, I love this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. They've got Pilate dancing on strings. They know exactly how to get him to move the way they want him to move. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, 9 a.m. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out with, or they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The question I want to address is, why did Jesus' accusers hate him so vehemently? Mark provides us one answer for that question in verse 10. For Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Envy is a powerful emotion. Powerful. You see, before Jesus showed up on the scene, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they were the unquestioned religious authorities in Israel. They were the holy ones. They held the people's esteem. You had a question about the Torah, you went to them. You had a question about the law, you went to them. You had a question about God, you went to them. They were God's men. But then comes Jesus. And Jesus doesn't submit to their authority. He thumbs his nose at their authority. He calls them out as hypocrites and religious frauds. He calls them sons of hell and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. And what's worse, he does it in front of the people. 
Jesus openly challenged their religious authority in the eyes of Israel, and they hated him for it, just as they had hated John the Baptist before him when John had called them a brood of vipers. So envy was a major factor in their hatred of Jesus. But Kent Hughes puts his finger on another reason. He compares their hatred of Jesus to that of a man who looks into the mirror and he doesn't like what he sees. But instead of taking ownership of his sloppy appearance, he takes out his anger on the mirror. He takes it off the wall, smashes it to pieces, and he mutters about how it always added 10 pounds and never quite reflected the light just right. So Hughes writes, quote, Jesus' life and inner righteousness earned abiding hostility because it revealed the horrors of their sin and the shallowness of their goodness. They would dash this mirror of their souls. So they nailed him to a cross, only to find that this magnified the reflection. You know, Jesus himself reflected on this phenomenon in John chapter 3 when he said that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus is a divine mirror who by his righteousness exposes our wickedness. So when the light of Christ's life and the light of his words shone the bright divine light of the spirit upon the wickedness of their hearts and the hypocrisy of their religion, they hated him and they did whatever they had to do in order to extinguish it. That's what's behind those frightful words, crucify him. There's one more group that the king must face in this passage, and that is his abusers, who are the Roman soldiers who become the instruments of his physical sufferings. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion And they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. There are two stages of Jesus' abuse that are highlighted by Mark in this passage. The first is the scourge. A Roman scourging was an act of horrific cruelty. It's interesting that neither Mark nor the rest of the gospel writers deem it necessary really to describe scourging, which probably points to the fact that it was so commonplace in the Roman Empire that description was unnecessary. Scourging was the customary precursor to crucifixion because it served to weaken the victim and hasten their death, which otherwise could have taken days as they hung upon the cross and slowly suffocated. A Roman scourge, the Latin word is flagellum, consisted of leather straps that were braided together and attached to a handle and woven 
into each strap were pieces of bone or lead that were designed to grasp a hold of the flesh and rip it apart. The victim would be stripped bare, bound to a post or a pillar, and and whipped until, as one commentator wrote, their flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The scourging would often leave the bones and the entrails exposed, and it was not uncommon for the scourging to be so brutal that the victim actually died before they could make it to the cross. The physical sufferings endured by Christ were unimaginable. But the abuse goes beyond that. In addition to the physical suffering he endured is the crushing shame which they heaped upon him. The Roman soldiers led Jesus away and scourged him, and then they called a whole battalion together to make sport of him. They threw over his shredded back a purple cloak, the color of royalty. They twisted a crown of thorns from the stems of an acanthus plant, and they placed it on his head, and they began to salute him in mock obeisance. Hail, King of the Jews, they repeated And they struck him in the head with a reed, and they spit on him, and they bowed the knee before him in mockery. And all the while, through it all, Jesus utters not a word. He remains silent. So not only was the physical suffering unimaginable, but the emotional trauma induced by the shame is impossible. It's just utterly impossible for us to grasp. When, when Mike read earlier today from Paul's hymn to Christ in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself, it's not only that he set aside the form of divinity and took on the form of man in the incarnation. Paul goes on and he recognizes he went further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The emotional trauma induced by this shame is astounding. The Lord of glory, whom the angels praise in ceaseless antiphonal song, was scourged and shamed until his back and his dignity were so shredded as to be unrecognizable. Which is why Isaiah writes that many were astonished at him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. If you'd have seen him there in Herod's courtyard, you wouldn't have recognized him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Why did he not call out? Why did he not do what he says in Matthew 26 it was within his power and right to do, namely to call and appeal to the Father for 12 legions of angels to suddenly appear in flaming fire and destroy Pilate, the chief priest, the crowd, and these crass pagan soldiers where they stood? Why, as the author of Hebrews writes, did he endure such hostility from sinners against himself? Why did he allow himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? 
Mark actually provides us a reason, or at least a picture of that reason in the person of Barabbas. We know nothing about this man other than what is given us in the Gospels, which is that he is a Jewish insurrectionist and a murderer. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner, meaning that he was well known at least to the Jews. But apart from this biblical witness, history is silent with regard to this man. His Hebrew name, Barabbah, means son of the father. But he plays an important role in the gospel narrative because he is the other side of this picture of substitution, which is the entire meaning of the cross. Who was supposed to be on that cross that Friday afternoon? That cross was made for him. Barabbas is the other side of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. I want you to put yourself in Barabbas' shoes early that Friday morning. Just try to envision this. You help to incite an uprising in Jerusalem against the Romans, perhaps that very week of Passover when Jerusalem was swollen with pilgrims and the city was abuzz with nationalistic excitement. You believe that if you could just spark the flame, if you could just light the tinder, ignite the fire, the rest of Jerusalem would follow you and you would drive the Romans from the holy city. So what do you do? You gather some fellow rebels and you find yourself some daggers. You spy out a gaggle of Roman guards or maybe some Jewish traitors walking through the streets in their Roman attire and you jumped on them. But things had not quite gone according to plan. Half of your fellow rebels lost their nerve and they fled. And though you were able to slip in a few dagger thrusts and take a few lives, you were soon overpowered, disarmed, and arrested. Your plan had failed. The revolution that you had hoped for never materialized, and now you're going to die. As soon as Passover is ended, you're going to be tried, condemned, scourged, and then crucified. But suddenly, as you sit in your dark, damp cell, Stiff and sore from the beatings and the nights sleeping on the cold stone floor, you, you hear the, the tumult of the crowd growing in the courtyard up above. Soon your ears pick up a chant, two words repeated over and over again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And you assume that they're talking about you. And when you hear the sound of approaching footsteps and two Roman guards open your cell door and they roughly drag you to your feet, your worst fears seem confirmed. So trembling, you walk between them, one on your left, the other on your right, up the stairs and into the bright sunlight. And as you stand blinking, trying to get your bearings, you see Pilate there seated upon the judgment seat. And beside him stands a rather pitiful figure in chains, hardly recognizable as a man. His ragged, blood-stained tunic hangs loosely off his shoulders, and you catch a glimpse of red, raw flesh that has seen the scourge. His head hangs low in exhaustion, his beard matted with blood and dirt and sweat. 
crown of thorns lies across his brow in a farcical sign of royalty. The guards, the guards shove you forward as you stand before Pilate who looks at you in disdain and then utters something that you don't understand. You feel the guards jostling with your chains and the shackles fall from your wrists and you stand there confused, rubbing the place where the metal has been digging into your flesh. The guard then shoves you toward the crowd and as it begins to part, it dawns on you what is transpiring. You are being set free and this king of the Jews is about to be crucified in your place. And as you take a step to leave before Pilate changes his mind, you catch a sideward glance at that man and you find that he's looking at you and in his deep eyes is all the sorrow and the suffering of the world. And you know that you will never, ever forget that look. For in that gaze is something else, something that shakes you to the very depths of your soul and it leaves you feeling utterly undone. In his eyes you see that he knows everything about you. And yet he loves you all the same. That's why Jesus did not open his mouth. That's why he allowed himself to be led like the lamb to the slaughter. That's why he died. He died as a substitute for sinners like Barabbas and like us. He died in the place of rebels. He died underneath the wrath of God in order that we, the children of wrath, might become the children of God, Barabbas, sons of the Father. So my question to you this morning as we read the first half of Mark 15, we haven't even gotten to the cross yet. Have you known personally and experientially that exchange. Jesus in my place. Do you embrace that exchange? Do you trust in it? Do you rely upon it? Do you love it? As your only hope. Is all of your hope and all of your life and all of your joy rooted in the knowledge that Christ Jesus died in my place? He died the death that I deserved. He absorbed the wrath that was due to me. He atoned for my guilt in order that I might be acquitted in the judgment of God and in order that I might become a son of the Father. That's the whole point of Christ's passion. And that, beloved, is the gospel. We are Barabbas, and Christ has died in our place. And my question for you is, do you know that? Not, have you heard of it? Not, do you know that it's true? Not, is that sort of the background narrative that you've been taught your whole life as you've wandered from Sunday school class to Sunday school class? I'm asking, do you know that? Do you love that? Is that your only hope? Christ for me. That's the gospel. 
That's why Jesus died. That's why Mark wrote about it. And that's why we're here this morning. And that's why in just a moment we're going to sing, Jesus, thank you. Do you know that joy of substitution? Do you know the freedom of being set free because Christ died in your place? I hope you do. If you don't, come see me. That is the primary reason why God has called me into the ministry and why this church has called me here. It's to help people understand and embrace that exchange, Christ for me. Come see me, and I'll lead you to Jesus.